was family movie night at the Browns. It means the girls get to select a movie from among the three that we allow them to watch. And we get popcorn and pop and we get together and we watch. It's re- All right, it's more than three. It's got to be at least five or six that we, we let them watch. This week it was a, a Charlie Brown Christmas. And you all know the classic and the theme is how everyone has forgotten the true meaning of Christmas and instead focuses on the commercialism. By the way, that was made in 1965. In fact, it was released December 9 of 1965. So this very day is the 42nd anniversary. Forty-two years ago, Charles Schultz put together a film about the commercialization of Christmas. Has it gotten any better since? As an example, Charlie's little sister, Sally, asked him to record a letter to Santa as she dictates it. And she starts out with pleasantries to Santa, and then she gets down to business. Dear Santa Claus, how have you been? Did you have a nice summer? How is your wife? I've been extra good this year, so I have a long list of presents that I want. Please note the size and color of each item and send as many as possible. If it seems too complicated, make it easy on yourself. Just send money. How about tens and twenties? To which Charlie throws up his hands and says, tens and twenties? Oh, even my baby sister. And then Sally says, all I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. Now, Sally expresses a sentiment that all of us have. We deserve the things we get and perhaps more. And when we take the I deserve it approach, the focus is not on the giver, but it's on the receiver. There are people who are now and will in the next few weeks make their list of who to give to based on who gave to them. Well, they never So I'm not going to. Now, the people who never give perhaps need to be confronted about their selfishness and their stinginess. But not because of its effects on us, but because rather it's harmful to them. It should not be that it's about us wanting their gifts, but that all must learn to give. We see this sort of scorecard approach in so many ways. How many times have we said or heard, you owe me one? The I deserve it mentality cheapens the motivation of the giver. You see, our passage this morning is about God's gift of love to us. But the gift and the love that motivated that gift are cheapened if we really believe we deserve it. And make no mistake, people think they deserve it. Which of these questions do most people ask? Why doesn't God let everyone into heaven? Or why does God allow anyone into heaven? The question most people ask is, why doesn't God let everyone into heaven? But the appropriate question in light of what we really deserve is, why does God let anyone into heaven? The gift and the one who gave it are all the more amazing when we consider the backdrop against which it's provided. It's our deserved, what we deserve, as we are going to see, is our condemnation. Now, most of you have a red-letter edition of the Bible. The red letters identify words spoken by Jesus while on earth. 
you probably show red letters from verse number three all the way down to verse 21. But you need to remember there were no red letters when the Bible was originally written. And the editors and the publishers of our English Bibles were not inspired. Last week, we saw Jesus' dialogue with a man named Nicodemus in verses 2 through 15. So you have Jesus speaking at length to him and the words in red letters. But Jesus stopped talking in verse 15. Contextually, verses 16 to 21 that we're going to consider today are John's explanation of what Jesus just said to Nicodemus. In verse 15, Jesus referred to the fact that anyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And so John goes on to discuss God's gift to us then, Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to follow along now with the outline we provided at the back of your program. Where we see in this passage that God's gift of love to us is in fact Jesus Christ. John begins this explanation of Jesus' words to Nicodemus in verse 16 famously this way. For God so loved the world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And notice that the object of this love is the world. In ancient times, the world was filled with gods created in the imaginations of man. One of the many things that could be said of these gods or of the many things that could be said about these gods, one of them was not that they were loving These gods were petty, vindictive, capricious, arbitrary, harsh, violent, immoral, and they were self-absorbed. They were just like the people who worshipped them. They were not loving. But the God of the Bible is love. In this statement that God loved the world, I want you to notice that God's love is not determined by the character of those whom he loves. That's how we love. We love what is lovely and deserving. God loves what's unlovely and undeserving. If someone is kind or loving to us, then we find it easy to return love. It's not how God loves. The word that's translated world in verse number 16 is the word cosmos. It describes the world system in which people live in rebellion against God. The Bible is telling us that God loved the cosmos. A world filled with wicked, rebellious, unloving, and unlovely people like you and me. God loved the world. And notice it tells us in verse 16 that the expression of God's love is the gift of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. When it says God so loved, it's not saying how much God loved. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes we'll say God loved the world so much. And indeed, the Bible speaks of the depth and the width of the love of God. He does have an infinite love, but it's not referring to how much God loved. God loved the world so much that he sent his son. Rather, it's telling us how, in what way God loved the world. God loved the world like so, like this. God loved the world and here's how he gave. God's love is expressed in the giving of his son. And it's impossible to know that God is love without knowing that God gave his son. The scriptures proclaim that the heavens declare the greatness and the majesty of God without. But without the coming of Christ, there could be no ultimate knowledge of the greatness of the love of God. In fact, in his act of giving, we have a pattern for love. 
God sacrificed of himself for the benefit of others, and thus he showed us what love really is. When God gave his son, he did so through both his birth and through his death. Notice verse 17. For God did not, and notice this word, send his son into the world to condemn the world. God sent his son. That's a reference to the fact that God the son existed from all eternity and he was sent to earth for his mission. Verse number 18 of chapter 1 calls him God the one and only. And verse 16 of chapter 3 calls him the one and only son. Remember this, friends. Jesus coming to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago was not the beginning of his existence. It was the beginning of his mission. God gave by sending Christ in his birth, but ultimately, as love is shown, by giving Christ in his death. In Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus that we saw last week, Jesus told him, in effect, you need to believe God's word and you need to recognize my authority. But then he also taught him, you need to trust in my sacrifice. And he described that sacrifice in verse number 14 of chapter 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And the comparison of lifting up is a description of the cross. If you believe, Jesus tells him, that Christ went to the cross for you, and if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. And John is saying, now let me explain that. God loved you in this way. This is how he loved you. In this manner, he gave. He sent his son to be lifted up on a cross. Friends, the gift of God's son came through his death. And that's why the Bible tells us this. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only gave us his son... But his son was literally sacrificed for us. The sacrifice, the giving of Jesus Christ was motivated by God's love, but also motivated by his holiness. You all remember that God's holiness required him to condemn sin rather than to ignore it. But his love motivated him, motivated him to condemn that sin, not in millions who deserved to be condemned but rather to condemn it on the one alone who did not deserve it. God, the one and only God, the son, Jesus Christ. That's why the Bible says this. God made him Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, God condemned your sin and mine in the person of Jesus Christ, his own son, God, the one and only. God loves in this manner. He gave his son. He sent him into the world with the purpose of dying in our place. Verse 16 goes on to explain that the purpose of God's love is that through faith in him, we will not perish, but we'll have eternal life. Now, hear this. We cannot understand the gift of God's love until we see it against the backdrop of our own deserved destiny. We cannot understand the gift of God's love until we see it against the backdrop of the destiny that we all deserve. I said earlier that most of us have the mistaken notion that we deserve the good gifts we receive. And if anything, we deserve more and better. Here's another indication that we believe that. 
Do you know almost everybody believes in heaven? But most people don't believe in hell. And if they believe in a hell, they believe it's for others. It's not for them. Isn't it the case that every funeral you have ever attended, you hear comments like, I know she's in a better place. But friends, not everybody goes to a better place. In fact, most do not go to a better place. Jesus said, Wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it. Small is the gate, narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Further, the Bible speaks of hell twice as often as it does of heaven. Jesus himself spoke of hell twice as often as he did of heaven. Now, given our I deserve better mentality, most people have rejected the idea of hell because they think that it's somehow unfair that God would dare to condemn someone to such a place. So sometimes folks ask, how is it fair for God to have me suffer forever for sins done in one lifetime? But we need to understand that although we take sin lightly, God never does, friends. Sin is Cosmic treason against God. It is punished forever because it is an infinite capital offense. And further, those who hate God in life will continue to hate God in eternity. Through all eternity, with clenched teeth, they will continue to curse the one who made them, the one who gave them a lifetime to repent, and the one who condemned them to their just fate. Friends, we cannot understand the gift of God's love unless we see it against the backdrop of the destiny that we deserve. We have got to lose the I deserve good and better mentality. But thanks be to God, our passage tells us that God loves the world in this manner, that he gave his unique son through his birth, ultimately through his death for this purpose, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You need not perish. You may have eternal life. Life that is a possession right now in the present. Life that addresses both the length of our lives and the quality of our lives. We'll give you opportunity to do that, to receive that gift at the end of our time. Now, after verse 16, having introduced the idea that if we believe, then we will not perish and we can have eternal life. John takes that theme and he expands on it. Verse 16 begins with an explanation of what Jesus has said. And now verse 17 begins with the word for. So it's an explanation of the explanation. And extends down through verse 21. God's gift of love to us is Jesus Christ. And now in verses 17 and following, God's gift of love to us provides deliverance from our deserved condemnation. Notice what verse 17 and 18 say. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Verse 17 tells us that the intent 
of God's gift of Jesus Christ, God, the one and only God, the son was to save rather than condemn. That raises a question because in chapter nine and verse thirty nine of the Gospel of John, Jesus said this for judgment. And it's the same word used here for condemn. For judgment, I have come into this world. So on the one hand, John is saying he did not come to condemn or to judge the world. On the other hand, in chapter nine and verse thirty nine, Jesus says, I have come to judge, to condemn the world. It's an apparent contradiction. How can they be reconciled? Consider this illustration. Imagine a cleaning woman who likes to keep the rooms in the house dimly lit. I'm always suspicious of restaurants. You know, all the fancy restaurants are dark. I like to see what I'm getting. Okay. But you got the cleaning lady who likes to keep the house dimly lit. As long as the rooms are sort of dark, dim, everything looks as though it's clean. Everyone assumes that everything's all right and her work ethic is fine. But when the drapes are pulled back, the windows are thrown open, the light comes streaming in. Everyone can see the reality, the dust on the mantel, cobwebs in the corners, grease on the stove. And Jesus came with the intent of communicating God's love and providing deliverance from our just condemnation. But hear this, the brilliance of his presence has revealed the sad reality of our condition even greater than before. His presence has intensified man's condemnation because they ignore and treat with disdain the gracious, precious gift that God has given to save them. God's intent was to save. But man nailed God's gift to a cross and has treated him with contempt ever since. And the result is greater condemnation. Songwriter asked a few years ago, what if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us. She said blasphemously. Well, what if God was one of us? I got an answer for that. God was one of us. And we killed him. We're saved from condemnation, friends, only through faith in Christ. And the intent of God's gift was to save rather than condemn. I want you to notice that the benefit of that gift must be received through faith alone. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed. The saving benefit of God's gift is received only through faith and faith alone. In four verses, the word believe, same word for faith, is mentioned five times. It's a dominant theme. And we need to remind ourselves that Faith or the act of believing is the opposite of doing. And that's why famously the Bible says it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This, the faith, is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's nothing you can do to please God apart from the work of God's grace in your life, enabling you to believe and then live for him. Faith is the opposite of doing. You can do nothing to earn freedom from condemnation. But faith also has to have the proper object, the one in whom I place my faith, the one on whom I believe must be the right one. And then the last part of verse 18, he says someone is condemned because he has not believed. Notice in the name of God's one and only son. In order to receive the benefit of God's gift, we must believe, but that faith must have a proper object. We believe in the name of God's unique son. Jesus Christ. Now, in ancient times, there was a relationship between one's name and what a person was. 
When John says you must believe in the name of Jesus, he's saying your faith must rest in all that Jesus is. You must trust him as your savior. You must trust him as your Lord, as the Lord of your life. You must trust him as your God. Because this is all that Jesus is. And it's all signified by his name. Faith is the way condemnation is averted. Without faith, condemnation is a present reality. Notice again verse 18. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. It's an unenviable situation to be a defendant in a criminal trial. Think about being a defendant in a criminal trial. The prosecution and defense have rested their cases. The matter is now solely in the hands of 12 men and women. Who knows what they're thinking? Who knows what they're going to do as they sift through the data of the trial? And the word comes back into the courtroom. They finally reached a verdict. Could you imagine sitting in the defendant's seat, watching the jury as it files into the courtroom, trying to read the expressions on their faces? The preliminary proceedings seem to be interminable and anticipation builds until you feel your chest is just going to burst. Most people feel and believe that there will come a time like that for them before God. They'll stand before God and God will sift the data and then he'll deliver a verdict on their lives. I can eliminate the suspense for you. If you have not committed your life to Christ, On the authority of the word of God, the verdict has been rendered. And we are condemned already. Anyone who has not trusted in Christ the Savior, Christ the Lord, Christ our God, stands condemned already. And in Greek, the language in which this was originally written, the word believe in verse 18, is written in what's called... The perfect tense. It simply means that this unbelief is a permanent and lasting state. It's not a fleeting moment of doubt. It's a continuing abiding state of failure to trust Christ. All who have failed to trust Christ are in this condition. Unbelief is the condition in which men enter the world. Unbelief is the atmosphere which every man breathes. For the unbeliever, Christ is irrelevant. For him, faith is just a word. His unbelief may be expressed respectfully. Now hear this. It may be expressed respectfully or even with curiosity. But never with the vital commitment of trust in the one who came to deliver them from just condemnation. He lives in ongoing, unchanging, persistent faithlessness. There's a second word written in that perfect tense in this verse. It's the word condemned. Everyone who is not believing in Christ is in an abiding state of condemnation. It's the present reality. And if that isn't long enough, John strengthens the point by adding the word already. If it is true that we're already under condemnation, if it is true that unbelief is the condition of all men, then what is our hope? Is God mocking us by sending his son saying, if you would only believe in him, you could avoid condemnation, all the while knowing that unbelief is so settled in our souls that no one will receive it? Hear this. We are saved from condemnation only through faith in Christ, but our hope is that the power of God transforms us and he enables us to believe. 
We are saved from the condemnation only through the transforming power of God. You might jot down Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29 in your Bible. Philippians 1.29. Here's what it says. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ to believe on him. It has been granted to you to believe. Though it's very subtle in our text, in the final three verses, John develops that truth. In verses 19 to 21, notice these three plain facts. The first one is this from verse 19. All people will reject God's gift because of the affections of sinful natures. Verse 19 says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Jesus came. Jesus, the light of the world came, but men did not love him because the Bible teaches men are sinful. And how many men and women are evil, sinful? Romans chapter 3, God took a poll. And God looked down through history to see who, who would love him. And this is how many he found. No one righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. Isaiah put it this way. All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. All men and women everywhere Love darkness instead of light. Now, to love darkness does not mean that you are actively pursuing Satanism. It doesn't mean you have a shrine in your basement. It simply means that you place greater value on anything other than the light who is Jesus Christ. One pastor tells the story of how he was walking taking a walk on a Saturday in his neighborhood. He noticed a new neighbor moving in. He stopped and chatted and invited him to his church. The man said, well, we might send our kids, but we certainly won't be there. The pastor was taken aback. He said, why won't you be there? Well, it's obvious. We're just moving in. We have to do work. We have to paint the house. I have to plant a garden. I have to build a shed. All these things take time. Sunday's my only day off. The pastor went on to try to discourage that sort of thinking, say maybe you could appropriate time during the other six days and come to church on the Lord's Day, but the man was not moved. He never did see that man in the church. But as he continued to take his walks, he noticed the man took great pride in accomplishing his tasks around his new home. The garden went in. It was a lovely garden. The shed was built. It was perfect to the last detail. The man had a facade of respectability. There was no shrine to the prince of darkness down in his basement. But you make no mistake, he loves darkness rather than light. And will do anything except be under the sound of the truth and the searing light of the gospel. And so we see that all people reject God's gift because of the affections, what we want in our sinful nature. John goes on to explain in verse 20 that all people will oppose God's gift because he reveals our true nature. Notice, everyone who does evil, verse 20, hates the light. He hates Jesus Christ. He will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. The presence of Christ reveals one's true nature. God is saying, do not stand on neutral ground deciding to go this way or to go that way. He's already made the point. Those who do not believe are condemned already. If you are not for me, you are against me, Jesus said. If you have not vitally committed your life to Jesus Christ, Friends, God is saying then you are opposed to him. And no doubt you have been convinced. 
I don't oppose Jesus. Me and Jesus are pretty tight. But God says otherwise. And in fact, God reminds us in Scripture, you know we deceive ourselves. The heart is deceitful above all things beyond cure. Who can understand it? And you know what we need, friends? We need for God, the one who knows all things, to tell us what's in our hearts. That the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things is what God says. And our wicked hearts will deceive us into thinking that we're somehow neutral and that we do not oppose Jesus Christ just because we haven't committed our life to him. But my friend, see your condition from God's perspective. All will reject Christ's gift because... Christ's gift because of the affections of their sinful nature. All oppose his gift because he reveals our true nature. Well, is there no hope? Pastor, give me some hope. In verse number 21, we learn this. Some people from among all will love God's gift because they've been transformed by the power of God. Verse 21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. So that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. John is saying here that there will be some who live by the truth and come to the light. But they don't do this because they're innately good. They don't do this because they're inherently lovers of light. They don't do it because they're smart enough to recognize a good deal when they see it. They do it because God has graciously taken the initiative. God has graciously changed their hearts and their affections And therefore, they live by truth and come to the light. And it is all of God. God sent his son to cancel the debt of sin. And this is the gift of love. And we are incapable of loving his gift unless God shows us the depth of the condemnation that we deserve. But God is at work in this world, touching the hearts of sinful men and women. So that they come to him. We're going to close in just a, just a moment. But in a group this size, there are undoubtedly some people who are saying, condemned already. I've been on the fence with this. I've been thinking about it. I've been letting God know that I'll come when I'm ready. And all the while we're saying that, God says we stand condemned before him. That is why the Bible says unequivocally today, today, now is the day of salvation. Now. We have no excuse standing before the one who is light and who has seen fit in his grace to allow you the freedom, the health to be here right now to hear this message. And you will not be able to stand before the God who made you and the Savior who died for you and ever say, I didn't know. I have told you. And I can say as the Apostle Paul, I have not declared, I have not hesitated to declare to you the whole counsel of God and therefore I am free of the blood of all men. So we offer you an opportunity now to come to him. Let me tell you, if you come to him, your life will be transformed from the inside out. 
You will have the life of which Jesus speaks in John 10, 10. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full, have it more abundantly. The stuff that just doesn't make sense in your life, now you'll start to see. I was put here for a purpose. And the God who put me here loves me. And he demonstrated that love in the sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave for me. It's not a life of drudgery, despite what you may see in the life of some Christians. It'll be the best, the most important, eternal decision you've ever made. We're going to bow. We're going to invite you an opportunity to do that. What do I do? Well, are you a sinner? The Bible's answer to that is absolutely. There is no one, no one who seeks God, no one who is righteous, no one who is good. All are sinners. If that's you, then you need the price that's been paid, the only price that can pay, the penalty for your sin. And that is the second point. Recognize Jesus died for your sin. If God has moved upon your heart, it means you are saying to yourself right now before God, Lord, I don't want to go my way. I want to go your way. I'm going to stop loving the darkness that is my way rather than your way. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. And you pray from your heart to him in your own words, sincerely, Lord God, I have seen that I am a sinner who has offended your holy standard. And I believe there is nothing I can do to save myself. I believe that Jesus Christ came to do for me what I could not do. Save me, deliver me, rescue me from the condemnation that I deserve. Change me, Lord, from the inside out. I want to go your way, not my way. He promises he'll save you. He did that for me. He did that for so many of you. And if you've been saved, if you've come to the light... Let's bow together and let's thank the Lord and let's recommit ourselves to saving him in gratitude for what he has done to us, for us. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this at once sobering and yet joyful look into your word. Lord, it is sobering to consider my condition before coming to the light. The condition of all men and women before coming to you. Lord, it is sobering, but on the other hand, it makes me all the more thankful because I'm reminded from whence I came. I'm reminded that I was dead in trespasses and sins. I was without hope and without God in the world, but God who is rich in mercy made me alive. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for doing that in my life at the age of 19. Thank you for the difference that it's made. Thank you, Lord, for doing that in the lives of so many men and women and teenagers in this group right now. Thank you for changing, Lord, then our allegiances and our affections and our values so that we redirect ourselves toward you and the purposes for which you have placed us here. And you've given us a joy in the journey, even in a fallen world. Thank you, Lord, for that. I thank you that there are some here right now who had not come to the Savior, but Lord, we pray, are coming to the Savior right now. Thank you that in your grace you still move on the hearts of men and women. And Lord, I pray that you are drawing some to yourself, that they're responding to that by receiving Jesus Christ as their only Lord and Savior and their God. I pray that they too will know the joy that you have seen fit to bestow upon me and so many others. We thank you for this now in Christ's name. Amen.
I'm going to stand and be dismissed with our closing prayer in just a bit. But particularly if you're someone who has come to Christ. When we pray just now, you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. I want to know about that. Here's why I want to know about it. Because now you begin a new walk, a new life. And our job here, our joyful task here, is to help you in the first steps in that new direction. So you let me know about that before you leave today. We'll set a time to get together and talk about this joyful journey that the Lord has embarked you upon. Okay? Let's stand together.